Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Before we begin, a quick warning. In the past, Nighttime has welcomed guests who brought with them some controversial baggage. But this is different. References will be made to neo-Nazism, mass murder, and self-harm. If these topics are triggers for you, either sit this one out or at least proceed with caution. Now, I'd also like to make a short statement in response to some criticisms this series has received, specifically surrounding the idea of a platform being offered to a convicted criminal. I would hope it's obvious for anyone who's listened, but this was something I considered carefully and controlled absolutely while working on the series. To avoid any possible exploitation of the appearance on the show, a clear line was drawn between learning about and hopefully better understanding the events that surround the failed shooting plot and allowing this guest to share their ideological views or, or anything that could even remotely resemble hate speech. The excerpts from the interview that you'll hear were specifically chosen and in some case edited to ensure that that line was maintained and that any platform offered was used only for its intended purposes. So again, use your own discretion and consider if this is something you want to hear. This episode is much more disturbing than what's come so far. The views and opinions of this guest do not reflect those of Nighttime or its host, Jordan Bonaparte. Listener discretion is advised. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to an ongoing series exploring the life and the crime of Lindsay Suvonaroff, the young woman convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to life in prison as a result of her role in the foiled Halifax Shopping Center Valentine's Day shooting plot. In the last entry in the series, titled The Story of Lindsay Suvonaroff, Part 2, Life Before Choosing Death, I used excerpts from a series of interviews I conducted with her via the prison telephone system to explore her life leading up to the time just prior to the beginnings of this plot. Over the course of that episode, Lindsay shared many of the relatively mundane experiences that led to her evolution from a regular girl with a loving family into a Columbine-obsessed college graduate with far-right neo-Nazi beliefs that are about as disturbing as she is unapologetic about it. Just as we left off in that episode, Lindsay had described the strange life she had been living just after graduating from Liberal Arts College and just prior to the birth of the horrific plot that would lead to her name being synonymous with hatred. I kind of see this little meme. You know there's this one blog called Just Girly Things and they just like, looks really... I don't know, things that just seem really dumb to me. And one of the things that they posted was like this image of of two girls and it says, not being able to live without your best friend. So I made a meme of that. Like, like I, I have that image and then below it is a picture of the Columbine shooters and they're dead. I posted that to my blog and I t- put it in the Columbine tag. And James found me through that post and he started following me and I started following him after that. His blog was called Shallow Existences. He obviously posted a lot of material related to Columbine. He also posted things from the different horror movies he liked. And so I just sent a quick message to James saying I thought he was really cool. And, I don't know, he 
He replied to that, and I eventually asked him, like, if he had any other accounts online that I could message him on, and he gave me his Facebook account. That young man who connected with Lindsay in one of the internet's many dark corners was, of course, 19-year-old James Gamble of Halifax. That connection the pair made happened on December 21st. In a little over six weeks, James would be dead, and Lindsay would be arrested while en route to Halifax to kill and die with him. But we'll get to that shortly. We're going to pick up the story in this episode from the point of this fateful connection. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our focus will be on Lindsay, James, and the Valentine's Day Massacre. This appeared to be a group of murderous misfits that were prepared to wreak havoc and mayhem on our community. Mass casualties were a real possibility. A day known to represent love and affection could have taken a much different meaning today. When you first connected with James, like what kind of person was he and where was he at in his life at the time of your, your meeting with him? One of the first things that James and I started talking about on Facebook was the music we liked. We had similar taste in music, and so I ended up introducing him to a lot of the bands that I knew of. I was the one who introduced him to National Socialist Black Metal, because he, he didn't have any idea of National Socialist Black Metal at the time, and I thought it would be a great thing to introduce him to, and of course he loved it. And we also found that we had the same taste in fashion. We both like this sort of sort of darker, I wouldn't say gothic aesthetic, but just because we like to wear clothes that creeps people out. We just like to walk around dressed like school shooters, basically. I had like a lot of military clothing and trench coats that I loved wearing, and he had like similar clothes. And what about uh, personal life? Like, did you talk much about um, like his family and work and these sorts of things? Like, where you got to know where he was in the world in that in that aspect? Kind of. We did talk about our families a little. I remember we talked about our pets. He told me about his cats, and I told him about my dogs. Can you talk about your initial relationship? What was the form it took? Were you friends? Was it romantic? And can you t- kind of talk about how your relationship developed from I'm interested in him and he's cool to the point that you're, you know, deciding you you may want to you're going to want to die together where your connections that tight. Can you kind of talk about how your relationship with James grew and what form it took? We originally began as just friends. We were just chatting, finding out we had things in common. And then we kind of started planning to meet up in real life, and the context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And from af- and after that, I don't know, I just felt really strongly attracted to him. I wasn't sure exactly what these feelings were. I thought it was just, you know, adrenaline from planning a murder, but it was, and it turned out to be so much more than that after we kind of... After we kind of got into those, into the sexting and the dirty images that people are always talking about in the press, he just started acting like he was completely in love with me. And at first I was just kind of going along with it, but then I just started feeling things for him too. What came first? Was it the the sexting or the planning of, of a mass murder? Do you recall? 
the planning came first, certainly. Do you remember how the idea of of conducting a mass shooting together, like, do you remember how that came up? I remember it pretty clearly. I remember we were originally talking about our clothes and how we like to wear clothes that intimidated people. I kind of asked him if he had any regular hangouts so that I could show up there too and people would be like, oh God, there's two of them now. And I don't know, he kind of, he kind of came up with the idea of maybe carrying out an actual attack while we're dressed in those clothes. And I found myself on board with the idea. I, we were originally talking about just scaring people at first, but then it kind of became something more than that. It, and when this conversation was happening in your mind, was it, this is something we're going to do, or was it more like fantasy role-playing kind of thing? Like what, what were you thinking? Well, I knew I definitely wanted to meet him that much. I know other than that, I thought that could be something I might want to do, but I wasn't really that serious about it until we actually started discussing possible locations, possible strategies, and so on and so on. After spending a considerable amount of time speaking to Lindsay about her relationship with James, I'm left with the conclusion that I'll never be able to understand how two strangers can make a connection and decide to kill and die together after only a few days of online communication. But as we'll get to, in the minds of Lindsay and presumably James, this relationship was incredibly powerful and was a matter of destiny. In fact, shortly we'll hear how the pair suspected that dark supernatural forces were drawing them together and guiding them throughout the planning of the plot. But before we hear about the twisted bonds that form around this fatal relationship, there's something that I think is appropriate to highlight. I don't know what role, if any, this plays in Lindsay's willingness to dive into this relationship face first, but if nothing else, it provides a bit of context. When entering this relationship, Lindsay did so with something between a damaged and a broken heart. As you'll hear, Lindsay and romance, they have a history. Before your relationship with James, did you have many romantic relationships with, with others? And, and if so, can you talk about kind of your, your history before James with romantic relationships? I didn't have that many relationships. To be perfectly honest, I don't like love and it doesn't like me. See, people keep telling me that I don't deserve love because I'm not the relationship type. And just because I fail to be as bland and sweet-seeming and saccharine as, like, all these other women who are in relationships, I end up staying single for, like, a long, long time. Like, was there a time that you ever had, like, a long-term or semi-long-term, more traditional relationship? Like, can you, can you think of a time that you did? Kind of, but it was it was just an online relationship. He kept telling me that we were going to meet in real life, but of course we never did. It was just a really stupid, superficial relationship that I probably took way too seriously for what it was. So you would say, I guess based on everything you said, would you describe yourself as unlucky in love? Hmm, I suppose so. It's just... It's just like people say, I'm not the relationship type. 
Now, I'm only speculating, but I can't help but feel as though the dissatisfaction Lindsay felt in her romantic life made meeting James even more consuming than the typical honeymoon phase one experiences in a new relationship. With Lindsay being such an outspoken supporter of her neo-Nazi ideologies, the dating field was certainly narrowed. And then, when you add her intense interest in the Columbine shooting and violence, finding a compatible partner must be comparable to finding a rusty needle amongst a collection of haystacks. Which realistically seems like a very good thing for society as a whole. Now, also, in reading between the lines of her statements on romance, I sensed some strong bitterness and perhaps even some signs that she felt a low self-worth in this regard. But as we continue our narrative, Lindsay and James, they appeared to be a match made in hell. The interests they shared, which would make them outcasts in any social circles I've ever been in, actually brought them together. As you'll hear, the pair came to believe that their bond had supernatural influence. They believed the spirits of the deceased Columbine shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebolt, found new life within them. Are you able to, in words, explain what exactly made your relationship so strong that you were willing to both kill and die together? Maybe could you just try to explain what James means to you and and how that happened so fast? We just felt like it was destiny, that it was fate, that him and I met, and that we both had similar goals. And we started planning things really, really early on. It wasn't until like a day or two after we started planning that we realized, okay, we were meant to die together. We just became really important to each other because of that. And the way that our personalities kind of meshed together, we were kind of like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. In in some respects, I would be Eric Harris and James was like Dylan Klebold. And we thought we were actually them somehow not exactly reincarnations but more like their spirits had found their way to us and that we were them are are you able to explain any further what you mean by their spirits found their way to you like in in which way did you feel you you were connected to the columbine shooters i believed that i had the mind of eric harris inhabiting my body somehow and that as time went on and I went and I was planning things more and more, he like started taking over me more and more. I just felt like I I wasn't myself, I was him at some point. And that this is what I was meant to be doing my whole life. Very interesting. And did James feel the same way or, or was that something you were kinda projecting on James as the role of Dylan? He started feeling the same way as well. Interesting. At this point, we learned as much about their relationship as I feel necessary to provide context to the mass shooting and suicide plot the pair would begin to form. When we return from a short break, Lindsay will begin walking us through the plot that would soon lead to James's death and her life imprisonment. Welcome back. I'll rejoin the story, but I'm not going to dive right into this next segment. Things are about to get tough. 
Lindsay will soon begin to walk us through exactly what the pair were planning to do in the food court of the Halifax Shopping Center. Now, I know during the course of this series, Lindsay has shared a lot that I, and likely the majority of others, found to be very upsetting. And it's not just what she says. It's her manner of speaking. The flat effect and the direct matter-of-fact approach, it makes it all the more disturbing. But this next portion, in particular, I think will forever echo in some of the darkest corners of my own mind. One of the first things we did was start thinking of possible locations. I left most of that up to him because, again, it was it was going to take place in his town. I didn't really know the area because I'd never been there before, so I left kind of left that up to him, and he kind of threw some ideas out there. One of the ideas he threw out there was a hospital. He liked the idea of being able to shoot and stab patients who are just laying there in their beds, but... I kind of said that sounded fun, but I didn't really think that in my heart. I just thought uh, that wouldn't really, there wouldn't really be much point to that. Another place he mentioned was a library. I I thought that shooting up a library would send the wrong message, and I just didn't want to copy Columbine too closely, so I didn't really go with that one. And he also suggested maybe an elementary school because there was one not too far from where he lived. I didn't want to do that either because I didn't want to send the wrong message. But one location that I ended up agreeing to was a mall, which we all know turned out to be the Halifax Shopping Center. What about the mall uh, to you was was attractive as far as like the message it would send? It was kind of this symbolism of Western decadence and the modern world in general, just the the idea of this place where people go to consume. It seemed like it seemed like a pro- it would be a protest against capitalism, against consumerism, against greed. I believe it was the film Dawn of the Dead that had zombies attacking a shopping mall, and it was supposed to be like this metaphor for our modern society and how obsessed with consumption it is. So I thought that would be perfect. With the location decided, the next thing to plan is how you're actually going to, you know, you being in Illinois in the United States and him being in his parents' house in Halifax, your next thing to overcome would be actually making it happen. What were you planning to to do as far as like weapons and how the, the massacre would unfold? Like what was your, what was your plan in that regard? James already had weapons. They were a couple of guns belonging to his father. And so it would be best it would have been best if I were to go there instead of him trying to come to the United States with his weapons. So the what so what I had to do was purchase a plane ticket to get to Halifax. And I had money saved up from holidays and birthdays. So that's what I used. And I understand that a part of your plan was to end the massacre by killing yourselves before being arrested. Can can you talk about how you came up with that, why you wanted to do it, and what would have happened? Like, how, how would you have ended this? Hmm. Well, the decision to kill ourselves at the end, that was something that James had wanted to do, like, the whole time. That was his main motivation, I think. He really just wanted to end his life, and I wanted to be able to end my life with him. 
and what we were going to do was we were going to save our last bullets for ourselves. And we were going, and just like Columbine, we would have shot ourselves on the count of three. Wow. And again, getting back to the to the planning, James had some weapons. You had a location to side it. When in your conversations with James, I'm sure you were talking about what was what you were going to do and what was going to happen. What were you planning inside the mall? What what were you planning to do? If this had have worked out, what would you both have done? I left most of the strategy to James because again, it was his area. It was I wasn't familiar with the Halifax shopping center, so his idea was that we go into the food court bathrooms, we change into the clothes we were going to wear, we get our weapons ready, and then we just kind of come out and open fire on the food court. Did you have any plan as far as who you would target or what you would say or whatnot? Like, did you have a, a plan in that regard? Hmm. We were just going to shoot pretty much whoever we saw, but we both kind of like had this sort of ideal victim in our heads, people that we would would especially want to kill. James just wanted to, he really, James really wanted to kill middle-aged women, especially those who might have been Christian, those who might have had a family, things like that. And I, there were several different kinds of people I wanted to target. One was maybe anybody who was particularly dysgenic looking, I just have these ideas about eugenics and like what kind of features mean that someone has good genetics versus bad. And I don't know, anybody with like poor looking genetics would just be a target for me. And another thing I was thinking of was, I don't know, maybe shooting some basic bitches and being like, haha, you look fat when you bleed. Anyone who's ever enjoyed a quick lunch in the food court of a busy mall, or simply anyone with respect for human life, is likely feeling a little more than uncomfortable at this point. What she said, and how she said it, and quite simply what could have happened, it's unfathomable to me. But it's hard not to notice that the plot wasn't elaborately planned. There didn't seem to be any real strategy, and what planning they did do seemingly had no consideration to logistics. In fact, to this day, there's ongoing conversation about if this even could have been carried out had Lindsay made it out of the Halifax airport. Based on a review of the Facebook chat logs, which I've read in their entirety multiple times, it seems as though the planning was divided between the horror they planned to inflict and the aesthetics of the plot. Lindsay and James, they had a strong vision. And they took inspiration from the dark interests they shared, and they spent a considerable amount of time what I can't help but describe as some sort of twisted attempt at branding. When I get back to the discussion, Lindsay will explain the vision they had for this plot's look and sound. We had our outfits planned down pretty much perfectly. James had this KMFDM shirt that he was going to wear that said Godlike on it, and he also had a scream mask that he really liked, and he had these um, camouflage pants that he wanted to wear, and I guess combat boots. And then I, what I had was this white shirt with an eagle on it, and it said Terror on the bottom. And I also had, had these 
black skinny jeans that I would wear with it. Since the shirt was kind of kind of longish, I had to wear skinny jeans with it. And I also had these black boots that I wanted to wear and a skeleton mask. Was there any symbolism to the to the clothing you wore or was this just something you guys thought looked cool? We wanted to wear outfits that would be similar to something that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold would have wore. And I think you were even planning what music you were going to either play or listen to. Can, can you tell me about about the playlist that um, that you and James had worked out and, and what what point that playlist had? James and I decided to start putting together a playlist that would kind of go with what we were planning. It was something that we were going to listen to like while we were planning this and maybe listen to it on the way there. But we were all but we also decided that we were going to post it to our blog so that other people could listen to it as well. And they would have no idea like what that playlist was actually for until it actually happened and then they'd realize, oh, all these songs kind of have a similar theme and they all kind of go with what happened and and yeah, it was just something to cement what we the kind of the aesthetic of what we were doing. It seemed like the idea of of cementing what you're doing and and dropping like little almost like little hints on your on your blogs was something that was important to you. Uh, can you tell me about some other things you had posted online as a way to I don't know if advertise or promote what you're going to do is the right word, but basically to like um, cement what you were planning to do because I, I believe there was also artwork and writing you had posted related to this. Yeah, we also left little breadcrumbs, if you will, on our blog. I kind of made this this image. I guess it kind of looks like a movie poster where it had a picture of me and James, and we were in black and white, and there was like this blood spatter in the background, and the title of it was Der Untergang, which, of course, was the name of our plan. And it said, Valentine's Day, it's going down. I think one of the other things you did on your blog was you had a note published that would automatically post you know the day after the attack at the mall on valentine's day can you can you tell me about your decision to to write that final message and and maybe tell me a bit about what you said in it i decided that i would write some sort of text post about my motivations for why i was doing what i did and my thoughts about it and i i never actually finished typing it i was too busy with james to really really do much writing and and so yeah I never finished the whole thing I had it saved as a draft it was never it was never in a publishable state and I don't really remember that much of what I put in it I think I talked like a bit about hatred in general and how hate is the drive to exterminate all weaknesses I remember that part Mm -hmm. but I don't really remember that much of it If anyone listening is interested in seeing that pseudo-movie poster Lindsay created, it's actually what I used for this episode's cover art. And for anyone interested in reading Lindsay's unfinished manifesto, I've posted a link to it in this episode's show notes. I found it interesting, and perhaps even revealing to note that it doesn't include the references to neo-Nazism or Columbine that seem to give inspiration to all aspects of this plot. It does, however, include references to love, which again makes me think of the grim comments Lindsay shared earlier about her romantic history. And then, one will likely consider the fact that the shooting was to be carried out on Valentine's Day, 
a day without any significance to neo-Nazism or Columbine. I myself had long suspected the attack to be at least partially fueled by a hatred of love and romance. But when I asked Lindsay if that was the case, she firmly denied it and explained that the plot was actually not even planned for Valentine's Day. It was actually switched during the pair's planning when Lindsay failed to buy a plane ticket before a price increase. The press have often referred to this as the the Valentine's Day massacre, but I understand it wasn't originally planned to to occur on Valentine's Day. What, What was the original date and what led to it being delayed? The original date was February 1st. There wasn't any particular significance to that date other than it was just the earliest date that I could possibly get to Halifax. However, James had the idea of changing it to Valentine's Day. First of all, because there would be more people in the food court that day. And second of all, because it would be more shocking to the public to do it on Valentine's Day. Okay. And the, um, like the idea of like you getting the plane ticket, was, was that like a, a big problem for you to be able to afford the ticket? Or, or did you have the money and just neglected to buy it in time? Or? I had the money, but I was just... Well, a little hesitant to purchase it because I was afraid of something possibly going wrong. And you didn't want to like buy the ticket and lose out on your money if he backed out or something? Yeah. Okay. Now with a date, a location, outfits, artwork, and a music playlist all agreed upon, the largest obstacle in the plot still remained. And that's getting Lindsay from the United States to Halifax and housing her for what would have been her final night. The decision the pair came up with inserts another shocking detail to this story. James's parents were to be the first victims of the massacre. The first thing I had to do was buy a plane ticket from Chicago to Halifax. Pretty simple, although it was quite expensive, so I could only afford a one-way ticket. And then from there, I had to figure out how to get from Geneva to Chicago to the airport. I decided that I would take a train from Geneva to Chicago because that would be the the cheapest, easiest way of doing so. And then from there, I would continue to take the train to the airport. Okay. So your plan was get the train from Geneva to Chicago, get on the airplane and come here. Where was it going to go from there? Because, again, you had two, we'll call them, well, James, of course, but also another co-conspirator in Halifax named Randall. How did they fit into the plan of, of getting you there? Like, what was what was going to happen next if, if you made it to Halifax? Randall was to meet me at the airport, and he was to give me the, the sort of directions for getting to James' house. And the original plan was for James to kill his parents so I would be able to stay over at his house, but... That was that didn't really transpire. There was a bit of a hiccup in the plan when and James' dad stayed home, home from work that day, and so James wasn't able to kill his parents. So the plan was changed so that I would be staying with Randall instead for that night, and then I would be able to go over to James. The next, Oh, the next day, okay. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you're comfortable telling me, but I know you aren't that close with Randall, but... How did he fit into into the plan? How like how involved was he in this? He wasn't to be involved in the actual shooting at all. His plan was to shoot himself like the day before 
Actually, no, not to shoot himself. His plan was to have James shoot him the day before, and then, and then from, and then from there, I guess um, James wanted it so that Randall would, would make a video recording of what we were doing. Um, what do you mean by that? Like, make a, Randall would make a video recording of what? James wanted Randall to instead of killing himself the day before to stay alive and and make a video recording of James and I shooting up the mall together. Do you know what the plan was to do with this video? Like was he planning to like post it or do it live on online or something or I wasn't sure exactly. We just I guess James just wanted there to be like some kind of video archive of what we were doing. I didn't that's that's new to me. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it was it was new to me as well. I didn't find out until I was at like the police station. I'm going to change gears in this episode at this point. So far, we've heard Lindsay describe her relationship with James, as well as the birth and development of the pair's mass shooting plot. For the remainder of the episode, we're going to follow Lindsay from her home in Illinois to a jail cell in Halifax. Only weeks after the pair met, the time has come for them to execute the plot. With a one-way plane ticket, a small bag, and a horrifying plan, Lindsay would begin her journey to Halifax. The first thing I had to do was get all my stuff together and sneak out of the house. I decided that I would do this in at 3 in the morning. And what I did before was I told my parents, oh, I'm going to be moving some of my stuff downstairs and so we could, like, like, box it up or whatever. And they were like, okay, do you want us to leave the light on? And I was like, no, I'll... I'm good. And so I was able to get downstairs without anybody noticing, and I went out the back door. And I, from there, I had to walk three miles to the train station with my bag. It, was, it took a very long time. It was exhausting, but nonetheless, I made it. And then from there, I took the train all the way to Chicago, and then I took a series of trains to the airport. All right, so when you made it to the airport, at this point, it's, I guess, like first thing in the morning by the time you arrived there? It, I don't remember exactly when I arrived, but it was pretty early on. I had, like, plenty of time to just sort of hang around in the airport before my flight was there. And then from there, I got on the flight. I, I went to, I think, Detroit. And then from there, I think I went to New York, and then from New York, I was to go to Halifax. When you're getting on the train and the airplanes and all that stuff, what was going through your mind? Like, were you thinking, were you excited about what you were going to do? Were you anxious about it? Or were you just not even thinking about it and just reading your book? Like, could you try to describe, you know, what you were feeling and thinking about while on the way here? At first, I was very eager, very excited. I was just very very thrilled to like be leaving home and then i don't know as i was i was like schlepping my bag all the way to the train station i just i just felt okay this might be more difficult than i had originally planned but i was still determined to make it and then from there when i was on the plane i just like slept pretty much the whole time because i was so exhausted from carrying that bag three miles (laughs) 
in your excitement, was it about like, of course, James is, is your boyfriend who you've never been with physically in person, but then you also had this, this plan to, to kill together. Was your excitement about being with James physically? Was it about the killing? Was it about reflecting on how people would view the events after it happened? Like what parts of this were you, was so exciting and appealing to you? Oh, everything was exciting. Mm-hmm. And at this point in in getting here, was there? Did you feel like anyone was suspicious of you, or were you able to kind of get this far without any problem? I got that far without any any problems whatsoever. The only time I actually did have problems was when I was arriving in Halifax. Because you're expecting to see Randall basically waiting for you, but that's not exactly what happened. So why don't you tell me where the trouble started? first thing I had to do was get past customs. And the thing was, I was asleep for pretty much the whole flight, so I didn't really have the have the time to fill out the little form. So I, so I just like filled it out as quickly as possible. I didn't really think of a convincing cover story or anything. So when I got to customs, the agent there, he thought something was, he thought something was off because I had very little money with me, very, very few items and that I only had a one-way ticket, so I ended up being detained, and I had to speak to CBSA. There was this one lady there. Ugh, she was just horrible. She was just, she just kept questioning me about, like, what I was going to do, and I'm just like, I'm here to, I'm just here to meet my boyfriend. We're going to spend Valentine's Day together, and she's like, what are you going to do, though? And I'm just sitting there thinking, lady, you seriously don't know what people do on Valentine's Day. Has it been that long? And then from there, I ended up, yes, being detained. And they were going through, like, all of my stuff. And I guess they really didn't like some of the items that I had with me. They didn't like my books. They didn't like the little hat that I had that had a swastika on it. And so from there, um, the police actually came. And I ended up being arrested for uttering threats. When they arrested you, did they explain what was going on? And did they explain that they knew of your plan? They said that they knew what I was doing, that they had read through all of my all of my logs and things like that. And it was very, very strange because I was arrested for uttering threats. I did not utter any actual threats. I knew the legal definition of a threat, and I knew that I had done no such thing. So I thought, okay, I actually might get away with this. Mm-hmm. Was that your thought? Like, were you thinking you, you, it maybe was still going to happen and you were going to be okay? Yeah, I thought I would be able to just get my way out of it because really, what had I really done other than have some conversations on Facebook and get on a plane? I didn't really think that I would be in that much trouble. When police arrived at the airport and took Lindsay into custody, it was certainly a shock to her. The planning the pair did seemed to give no consideration to the realities of international flights, and as such, Lindsay appeared to have been unprepared for the questioning that someone traveling on a one-way ticket with next to no money or luggage would expect. But any shock she felt likely turned to panic when the police informed her that they were well aware of her had already accessed her Facebook chat logs, and seemed to know exactly what she was doing in Halifax. 
What we now know is that an anonymous tip was made to Crime Stoppers, informing law enforcement that a young woman named Lindsay S. was on her way to Halifax to carry out a shooting in the Halifax Shopping Center. The identity of this tipster is still a mystery, but it's something Lindsay has thought about considerably. I understand as well that you weren't entirely secretive about what you were planning and you had spoke to some other people about it. Can you talk about what you said to other people, how they reacted and you know who these people were? Because ultimately one of them ended up leading to the demise of the plan by, by reporting you. It was both James and I who were talking to other people about it. I was very, very careful about it. I was careful not to name a specific location or a specific target. I kind of hinted at what James and I were going to do, but I never outright said, we're going to kill people. And my friends, uh, I told my friends on on the Skype group I had, and they all... And they all seem actually pretty supportive of it, though none of them actually articulated that thought exactly. James, I guess, leaked more details of our plan because he's, he really wasn't as careful as I was. So ultimately, somebody had made that tip that somebody named Lindsay S. would be coming from somewhere in the States to do this in Halifax. At this point, do you know... Or do you have any idea who the tipster was? And, and do you even care to know? Hmm. I'm still trying to figure out who it was. See, I know the details of the tip, and that gives me some clues. Like, I have enough information to know that it was someone who knew James, but not me very well. That it was someone who must have been on Facebook, because most of the information that they had about me came off of my Facebook profile. So I have some inkling of who might have done it, but I can't name anyone specific. Whomever this tipster was, their willingness to pick up the phone and do the right thing likely saved lives and certainly prevented this horrifying story from becoming something even worse. And thanks to that tipster, This is where the plot to shoot and kill at the mall ends. Before we wrap up the episode, however, there's still a lot to cover, as Lindsay still wasn't formally charged, and the whereabouts of James, they were still a mystery to her. What Lindsay didn't know was that while she was being questioned by border security at the airport, Halifax police were forming a perimeter around the home of James Gamble. You're taken from the poli- by the police from the airport to the... I'm guessing they took you to the police station. Why don't you tell me about what happened when you showed up at the, at the police station from the airport? I don't really remember that much about first arriving, but I remember I was in a holding cell for a little while. They had to search my clothes and things like that, and I was like given this little gown that I had to stay in while they were going through my clothes. And then... I was eventually able to put my clothes back on, and I went upstairs to be interrogated. And the interrogation didn't happen in, like, all one chunk. They let me they let me have breaks every now and then so I could rest. What was, like, the interrogation? Like, what kind of things were they interrogating you about, or what were they asking you about? They asked me a lot about 
about my plans, what my actual plans were, and I said, oh, I planned on on killing myself with my boyfriend on Valentine's Day. And they kept asking me about, about like my interest in Columbine and the things that were on my blog and things like that. There were different there were different cops there and of course as anybody who who had watched a TV show about such things knows that each cop like has a, like a different style for interrogating a suspect. Some of them were some of them were very aggressive with me, some were more passive aggressive, but overall I really did not give them any useful information. At this point you're probably thinking like Randall and James are like in other cells getting interrogated or something. When did you find out what happened to Randall and what happened to your boyfriend James? Well, I knew that Randall got arrested with me because he was at the airport at the same time that I was. I did not find out about what happened to James until, I don't know, maybe halfway into the interrogation because one of the things I kept saying was, don't ask me, ask James. And eventually one of the cops came in and he just told me, James is dead, he blew his head off. Wow. What did you, like, when you heard that, what went through your mind? I thought he was lying. See, one of the things that I did was I spoke to a lawyer over the phone, and he told me not to believe anything that the cops told me because they can legally lie to me. And so I thought, okay, this is just a trick somehow. Mm -hmm. So when the police came in and said, you know, James can't answer these questions, he's dead, initially you weren't believing them. Do you recall when it got to the point where you're like, oh, shit, like, they're telling the truth, James died? I don't really recall that moment at all. It was, it was, I guess, just something that one of the other cops might have said that it just finally dawned on me that, okay, this, this actually happened. Mm-hmm. When, like, when does the gravity of all this hit you? Like, is there a moment where you're just, where you're realizing, like, oh, shit, like, this is a really big deal. You know, James is dead. Like, do you, do you remember a time where it all just kind of fell on your shoulders? What had actually happened? There wasn't any moment in particular. I think it all just kind of trickled onto me slowly. Do you remember what it like? Can you talk about what it felt like to be faced with this? Hmm. Well, at first I thought, okay, this is game over. I can't go home. I can't. I can't get out of this. So I thought there is really, really nothing I can do. And when it got to that point, did you just tell them, you know, what had happened? Like, was there ever a point where you're just like, forget this. Like, I'll just tell you guys everything. No, not at all. I still refuse to give them any information because I still thought, okay, I, the less I say, the better. But I guess it was Randall who ultimately spilled the beans or that's just what they told me. All right, so some time would have passed from you being arrested um, with uttering threats and these interrogations. When did you realize what legal battle you were facing? I was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. I think it was after Randall had said something about our plans. There must have been, like, after your arrest, there must have been a point where you had to, like, call your parents from jail or whatever. Like, do you, do you recall doing that and like how how that happened 
and what what that was like to kind of face what was happening? Hmm. I kind of refused to call my parents until I was actually at court. So did you not talk to them while while you were being held? I was given I was given the um the chance to call them and I like refused to. Well, I didn't I didn't know that. And that's probably just you knew that wasn't going to be a pleasant phone call. Yeah. They were fun. They laughed at my jokes. Vincent Appleton met James Gamble and Randall Shepard six months ago. Since then, they would hang out and go to live metal shows. I've come to the understanding that I probably didn't really know them very well or at all. The last time Appleton saw Gamble and Shepard was three weeks ago. It was the exact same as any other time that I went out and they were there. 20-year-old Shepard and 23-year-old Lindsay Suvanarath are both charged with conspiracy to commit murder. 19-year-old Gamble was found dead in his home after police surrounded it early Friday. Police say Gamble and Suvanarath, an American, were planning to open fire in the Halifax shopping center before killing themselves. Professor of psychology Stephen Smith says it's possible the alleged plan was hatched within a specific group of people without anyone else finding out. If you have very extreme views or you want to engage in very extreme behavior, it might be very difficult for you to find other people in Halifax that think that way. But if you can go to the internet where you now have access to you know, hundreds of millions of people, those, pe- you know, those other extreme people will be on the internet and therefore it'll be easier for you to find them. A blog that is linked to Gamble shows graphic images of guns, sexualized violence and discussions about the Columbine school massacre. Police say they think Suvanarath and Gamble met online. Why they allegedly hatched the plan is still under investigation. The point that this was already at the very specific plan stage suggests that it was, you know, quite plausible that they were actually going to do it. They had a date, they had a place, they had the materials they needed to do it. So that's where there's high risk. Shepard and Suvanna Rath will both appear in a Halifax court tomorrow. It's time to start wrapping up the episode. Since we started, we've learned about the unique relationship Lindsay and James Gamble formed, including her thoughts on the dark forces the pair felt were guiding them. Then, we heard disturbing details of the mass shooting the pair plotted to carry out before ending their lives, just as the Columbine shooters did. But fortunately for all who put a value on human life, we were also able to follow Lindsay from her home in Illinois into police custody in Halifax. With this episode being titled Lindsay, James, and the Valentine's Day Massacre, it's at this point in the story that we'll stop. Both Lindsay and Randall are arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. And as far as James Gamble, his life was the only one lost when he shot himself in his home as police closed in around him. Now, were it not for the good deed of the anonymous informant and the strategic errors on the part of the conspirators, it's hard to consider what could have happened. When we return for our next episode, part four in this series, Our story will again pick up from this point that we're leaving off, with Lindsay facing justice and beginning her new life after planning death. I knew that mine was a very, very odd case, and that the the bulk of the evidence was just the Facebook logs. There was very little other concrete evidence aside from that. So 
I thought I actually had pretty good chances. My lawyer seemed pretty confident that he would be able to get those logs excluded because the police had made several mistakes in acquiring that evidence. So I was very, very hopeful at first. I remember my lawyer telling me about the judge that we ended up having for this case, and he really did not sound hopeful about it, given what he knew about that judge. But I thought we should take our chances with it anyway. I just wanted to see what would happen on that particular date where we were supposed to try and get the logs excluded. Of course, that ended up being shot down, and that's when I changed my plea to guilty. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. But I do want to end with some short messages. I want to dedicate this episode to the anonymous informant who did the right thing and prevented a tragedy. Whoever you are, if you're listening to this, my hat's off to you, and I hope you know how much of a difference you've made in so many people's lives. If you ever want to step out of the shadows, I'd be happy to meet with you confidentially to personally thank you over a coffee. If you decide to contact me, your identity and the fact that we even met will remain completely and absolutely private. I'd also like to send my condolences to the family and friends of everyone involved in this story. The families of Lindsay Suvonaroff, James Gamble, and Randy Shepard, by all accounts, are average, loving families, likely similar to the ones that we came from. And now for some thanks. A huge shout-out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this episode. You can check out both of these great bands by following the links in the episode notes. A big thank you to Christy Lee of the Canadian True Crime Podcast, who generously supported this series by featuring an excerpt in her most recent episode. As well, a big thanks to Apple Podcasts Canada, who chose to feature Nighttime as well as this series on their platform. But most of all, I want to send a huge thank you to anyone listening as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my free time doing what I love to do. So thanks. And for anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the creation of the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free, early releases of episodes, in addition to prior episodes no longer available on the main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. Now I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to this group. John Findlay, Katie C, Jay Morvan, Rosemary Hayes, David Meyer, and Nancy Murphy. I sincerely appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities both on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If any of you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.